The Live Exchange Conference is your chance to find out what's happening in the livestock export industry with a program that features thought-provoking and informative speakers. Open to all members of the supply chain, you can network with around 400 delegates from across the country, with several social events and a variety of trade exhibits. Live Exchange is being held on the 9th and 10th of November 2022. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Grief takes many forms, and Lara Jensen's has crystallised into anger. Just over 20 years ago, her brother Christian's Toyota hit a train at a passive rail crossing, killing him and his two young passengers. This wasn't a case of drink driving, speeding, or being distracted. The findings from the coronial inquest showed countless safety issues at both the crossing and with the train itself. On that fateful Saturday night, those kids did not stand a chance. Since then, Lara hasn't stopped fighting to make rail crossing safe, and she now represents a dozen families across Australia who have also lost loved ones. This is an episode about grief, public safety, and holding authorities to account. Most of all, it's about raising awareness of the inherent danger each and every one of us faces when we cross a passive rail crossing. You may be thinking, come on, how can you not see a train coming? And I admit, I held similar reservations before hearing Lara's story. It was only a few weeks after recording this episode that I found myself at a passive level crossing where I saw firsthand just how dangerous they really can be. I actually recorded a video and you can find that on our YouTube channel, Facebook and Instagram accounts, and I'll put links in the show notes. To start our conversation, I asked Lara to tell me about the days leading up to her brother's death. It was early July uh, and our family were uh, preparing to complete our annual shearing. I was home helping my dad and my older brother and, yeah, so we, we spent those few days mustering, um, getting sheep into holding paddocks um, in, in readiness for, for shearing, um, which was due to start on uh, July the 9th. The night before shearing was due to start, uh, we had a knock at the door at around 12 or it was very late in the evening. 
two police officers came to the side door to the homestead, which is very unusual. Everyone went to the front door, but they knocked at the side door and one of them asked me to go and get my father, um, which I did. And I was quite surprised at the time because we had a shearing team there. I thought perhaps the policemen were coming to notify one of them of an accident, but that wasn't the case. The uh, my my dad woke up mum and then my father also uh, woke up my brother and we went to the kitchen table um, where the two policemen in attendance uh, told us that Christian had been killed uh, in addition with uh, his two friends at Jenica Bine. Um, and then they gave us a booklet on uh, how to deal with grief and soon after they left and just left us with grappling with the reality of our new lives. So uh, we were completely devastated, obviously. Um, We were struggling with the reality that we'd lost Christian and then we were also struggling with the terrible tragedy of losing two of his friends, two beautiful girls. Um, One of them was from station country, um, the other from farming country. Um, and yeah, so the, the following morning, um, the landline started ringing fairly hot. We had our, um, relatives from, um, a nearby station. They were first over the Jones family. They came over to support mum and dad, um, and my brother and myself who are home. Um, we obviously had to contact, um, my two sisters, uh, one of which was at Mullawar and my, my other sister was in Perth at the time. Um, and yeah, it was very much a blur, but I, I do remember neighbours, uh, friends bringing food, casseroles, flowers, uh, and just sitting with us, being with us while we also had to get the job of clearing our holding paddocks done. Obviously, we then had a Christian's funeral to plan, um, as well as helping the other families that were involved in this terrible triple fatality. Uh, obviously, we're all completely shocked and, yeah, it was, it was. I think, with terrible tragedies like this, you know, the adrenaline kicks in, the grief kicks in and looking back, I don't remember a great deal about it apart from the fact that it was a, it was a flurry of activity and just the landline just ran hot. People were so wonderful. Everyone offered to help and, and that way we were able to clear the, sh- the sheep yards in time and, and things. We, we saw what was there and, and we left it at that so we could plan Christian's funeral. When you were sitting in the kitchen with the police, did they go into detail about how Christian had passed away? They said it was a, an accident at a, a level crossing, but we didn't fully, uh, yeah, they, they didn't really go into a great deal of detail apart from the fact that, uh, that Christian and his two friends had been killed and that obviously, um, Christian would need to be formally identified and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it, it was a little bit sketchy on the detail. And at that point, they probably didn't have a whole heap of detail themselves, to be fair. Yeah. Understandably, the next couple of days or weeks were, were to be a blur. As you said, you had all your sheep in ready for shearing. You had contractors there. So that in and of itself would be a huge undertaking and mm. uh, require a lot of logistics and planning and, and some level of stress. And then all of a sudden this happens. And it's not like you can just, you know, send everyone home and let the sheep back out into their paddock, you know, as anybody who, who looks after animals knows there's certain things that have to be done and that can't be 
put off. Mm. When did the dust start to settle and did your family and the families of the other victims start to learn the details surrounding the accident? Uh, so in the weeks following the accident, obviously it was, it was quite a blur and we, we didn't know the full details of what had happened. I only know that my brother is obviously, was always an incredibly careful, conscientious driver. Uh, for his age, he was quite incredible like that. So we were all left reeling, um, not only because his own life was gone, but it, he'd sort of taken two people with him and, and Christian, yeah, he was a, he was an amazing bloke like that. He, he took the responsibility of having passengers in his motor car very, very seriously. Um, we did, we did find out, um, that the following day after the, they were killed, the, um, the crossing had been extensively cleared. So trees cut down, roadside vegetation cleared the following day because that, that particular crossing was, yeah, um, was notorious and problematic and, the the shires there were both northern and gamelling shires uh, involved in that area as well as main roads that the the responsibility of it was it it's a little bit it was a hard one to pin it and we never did find out exactly who did that clearing but we've got a fair idea sorry so just to clarify the morning after the accident a vegetation around the crossing was cut down. Mm, that's correct. Yes, we've got photos to prove that it happened the following day. So. So before the accident, the vegetation was obscuring the signage about the crossing. Yes. And yep. then the morning after, I mean, if that doesn't reek of cover up and guilt and I don't know, whatever else, like this, that, that sounds like something out of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like if that doesn't sound like, Oh crap, we didn't do our job quick. We better get in there. Yeah. And you know, and of course at the time we were all dealing with the fact that we had to prepare three funerals. So nobody was really chasing this. And, and in hindsight, we wished we'd pursued it a bit more at the time. But again, we were dealing with an well, enormous you grief. We didn't even realize what it meant at the time. No, like we're all in shock. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it could have just been standard, you know, clearing that was going on in the whole district or whatever. Yeah. And I guess learn later on that that's mm. probably the beginning of, yeah, some yeah. sort of. The angle of that particular crossing was quite bad too. So any any sort of obstruction, um, you know, to your line of sight is a particular concern with passive level crossings, obviously, because of the danger they represent. Yeah. Um, we also knew uh, following the autopsies, of course, of my, my, the autopsy of my brother, that um, there was no alcohol in his system and that, that was sort of weeks after the accident. And I knew, I knew that as soon as we heard about the accident, I knew that he wouldn't have been drinking. Um, he He was so careful must have been somewhat validating though to have that proof absolutely you know even though you mm. know you know you've you know small towns um i don't know just you know people trying to when you're when something so tragic happens people try to find a reason for mm. it and i'm sure you know you go through a list of things and that was probably yeah. you know went through everyone's minds at one point but to have that proof in the results that there were yes. no drugs or alcohol in his system oh yeah no absolutely and you, you've got to remember there were three rural communities you know absolutely reeling here had, um, jess was from the murchison she, her family had moved out to the goldfields Hillary was a, a Beverly girl, you know, a farm girl. Christian was a, a well-loved identity in Mount Magnet. You know, they, all the, the networks out there were, were completely shocked. Mm. 
Oh, and we, uh, my sister, my older sister Kylie, she contacted the train driver soon after the accident, and he confirmed that the that Christian and Jess and Hillary, who are you know three young people <laughs> in the prime of their lives with perfectly good eyesight, um, all three of them hadn't hadn't looked up to see that train. So, and we know because of the the lights in the area with tractors and things like that, uh, that and the fact that it was right on dark, that there was a degree of uh, yeah, lighting interference around and, and the fact that a train light is the same size as a tractor light, basically probably smaller again, you know. So, um, yeah, we know that, that yeah, that he, he confirmed that. So they, they didn't see it. I just can't imagine being in that train driver's position. But, again, mm. I just want to see if I'm, if I'm piecing this together correctly. So they're crossing, they're coming up to a, a rail crossing uh, it's like you said, it's going on dark. They're in farming country, so they're just basically driving through paddocks. Yeah, on an obtuse angle. Yeah, yeah. on on a yeah. So mm. the angle of the road to the rail crossing isn't you know like a yeah. There's a, it's on this weird angle. It's near on dark. There's tractors out in the paddocks because it's seeding. You know, they're seeding and they're working. You know, they've already got their headlights on. Yes. The there was vegetation. Um, obscuring the warning signs to say, hey, you're approaching a rail crossing. Yeah, that's right. The train, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but the train just had like kind of two pretty shitty headlights, Mm. which are from a distance, look no different to a tractor. Yeah. Obviously it's traveling at a much greater speed than a tractor. Yeah. Uh, but the tractor, the, the train driver said that as, you know, shortly in the moments before the collision, they didn't look up. So they didn't, they didn't stand a chance. They didn't know. And, Mm. They didn't see it. And, and and as a motorist, a regional motorist, you want every opportunity to see that train. That, that should not be too much to ask. It wasn't too much to ask. 21 years ago, it's not today. You know, it's just the long and short of it. And the, the train driver, the particular train driver, I, I've been in touch with him several times since. He's a lovely person. We never apportioned any blame to him. How could we? <laughs> he was just doing his job. But for him to have to sit with them, the three of them, until emergency services arrived, um, him and his co-driver, it was yeah in his own to in his own admission was the most terrific thing he he'd ever been involved in i mean it was terrible yeah i did uh see him say in an interview that it took about 700 metres for him before he was after the, the collision, yeah. before he was able to stop that that's, train. That's correct, yeah. So it was fully loaded. There was 28 wagons of wheat on it, so there's a lot of weight behind that train and, and as a result pushed pushed them along and then off the off the side, yes. I don't ever want to think about, you know, no. whether it's a matter of seconds or minutes, um, that would feel like an eternity. No yeah, what. absolutely. Horrific. So yeah. I, I want to... I suppose break down and really so everybody listening has a really clear understanding of of the area and what you know all the factors that contributed to this accident because I am sure you know by the end of this episode people are going to be wild you mm. know as mm. I, as I am once I learn the details and so your the accident happened at a passive crossing. So what mm. is a passive crossing and what's the alternative? Like there's two types of rail crossings yeah, that's in Australia. that's right. Yeah, you've got passive and active. So passives, they only have uh, signs in place to forewarn you of the approach of a train. Um, so, you know, stop sign, give way sign, adva- an advance warning sign. Active, obviously they have uh, the boom gates, um, the bells and the lights on approach to that. 
and they're the ones that you obviously strike in metropolitan area. But yeah, out, out in the out in the boondocks, yeah, <laughs> you get passive. Yeah, so the bare I, minimum. Yep. I think I've probably driven over both of them probably equally because I suppose up in the Pilbara, you know, where we've got a lot of mining, uh, they're they're all active crossings. I can sometimes, you know, it's a bit of a novelty. You might get stuck there for five minutes while this iron ore just, you know, kind of trundles past. And yeah. And for the rest of our listeners, yeah, in the city, yeah. So if you're coming up. There, they've got the boom gates, the flashing lights, and you physically cannot progress across that track. That's correct. It's a robust warning yeah. system. Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. Mm. How did how did somebody decide what what crossing gets boom gates and lights, and what one just gets, you know, a, a give way or a, you know. Warning, train, yeah. you know, train tracks ahead sign. Yeah, this is an interesting one. They, they, they work it out on the uh, main roads traffic volume counts. That's, that's how the, the ones in the region, there's a lot less spent on them. There's a lot less in the way of signage thrown at them. Uh, only because, yeah, they, um, yeah, so the, the, the further out you get, the less traffic on these roads, the less in the way of signage you're going to get at the crossing. Okay. So I can see that making sense, say, as an initial uh, strategy. So we're implementing, you know, we're building a rail system in Australia. We can't put in active crossings at every single one. You know, this is something we've got a budget for and do over time. You know, I, I can get that. Okay. Well, we're going to start with, you know, the most active, you know, the ones with the most highest traffic. That's where we're going to put the boom gates and, mm. and over time we'll, you know, work, you know, the end goal is to convert them all. Yeah. But that's not what's happening here. It's, you know, nothing. Mm. There's, there are your active crossings in Australia and, and the transition of passive to active is, more or less non-existent. That's if, right. If not snail pace, but I don't think it. To be honest, it is even snail pace. No. It's basically just it is what it is, and there's no plans to really change it. That's right. And and like the installations that are possible out there in the eastern states, we know exist already. They're like twenty five to thirty thousand dollars, and they're a solar solar powered installation on approach to a train. They are a flashing light um, assembly. Uh, obviously, our families aren't looking for you know a five hundred thousand um, dollar lighting array at every crossing because we know that that's not going to happen. But in the case of uh, the Yarramundi level crossing, it was yeah fourteen years before main roads um, put in flashing lights there when yeah four people had died. So we've just covered some of the things that have, have been contributing to the accident. I've got to ask the obvious question. How does one, because, you know, this isn't the only accident that's happened in Australia. There's mm. actually a surprisingly high number. Yeah, there's, there's too many. I'm sure people listening may be wondering, like, how do you not see a train coming? Yes, yep, yep. No, we hear that a lot. <laughs> the, 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 the thing is that you can't see them in so many scenarios. You look at heavy fog situations, low light, darkness, heavy rain, and the thing is that since we set up this Facebook page and I've been dealing with the families on so many of the occasions, we know that people have obeyed, they have adhered to the signage, they just haven't seen the train on the other side. And this is, and I know some people out there will probably struggle with that, but I've read a lot of coronial inquests and you've got, yeah, but people are not being given every opportunity to see that train. And that's why we're pushing train visibility as well as passive level crossing safety, because it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a double edged sword, really. Mm. I, th- I think it definitely can be something that's difficult to get your head around until you actually see it with your mm. own eyes. And we will make sure that we're putting um, links in our show notes and also posting on our website and social media examples of photos and videos. Yes. Of, because yeah. so to, to clarify again, where the the campaigning you're doing is for is is attributed to passive, not active. Because obviously, yeah. active is the goal. Active level, yeah. level crossings yeah. with warning lights and and those boom gates. 
But I'm thinking, even myself, a lot of the passive level crossings I've crossed perhaps maybe aren't as, as you know, like it's not all passive levels are equally dangerous. Like there's, I guess it's on a scale. Mm. Um, there's, I can think of some, you know, particularly driving out in mining country where for several hundred metres before you get up to it, like you can, it's, it's open country, mm. you can see. And as yes. you say in the hundred metres before, you actually cross those train tracks. You can actually do a look left, look right, and not even have to necessarily slow down too much because you can see for a ways. It's almost like, you know, they say Kansas is so flat, you can see your dog run away for three days. Yeah. You can almost see a train coming from three days away. Yeah. Yep. But there are other crossings where perhaps, yeah, like you said, there's vegetation and you, you really can't. Like it's almost like mm. anywhere driving in a motor car and you, you pull up to an intersection and you really have to like nudge forwards, nudge forwards because you can't see of the angle of the road. Mm. Is something coming? Am I in a blind spot? Yeah. But as you said, we've also got these issues of, um, so you're coming up somewhere, there's just a sign. So first of all, the sign may be obscured, Mm. but then we've got other conditions, like you said, heavy fog, rain, Mm. the visibility there. Yeah. And yeah, dusty and, environments too, you yeah, know, dust. which often the way in, in farming areas. <laughs> yeah, and then and as, she, and as she also just said, it's it's a double-barreled issue of the crossings aren't sufficient because, yeah, you, sometimes you can't see for the conditions, but also trains themselves. Again, you think, oh, big old train, like here comes yeah. Thomas the Tank Engine. That's right, yeah. No, and I, if the road transport industry can manage it, I'm sure rail can. <laughs> I was absolutely blown away. You showed me... Because I, I guess personally, I don't think I've actually come across trains at night, maybe, or at least, you know, out in the, out in rural areas. And you showed me a video, which we'll put on our Facebook of somebody, like you're sitting at a, at a passive level crossing. So you've got your headlights, you can see the little sign. There's, you, it's just pitch black and there's these tiny little like reflective strips on the train, but they're very few and far between. Like yeah, a, patch your right. And <laughs> if you didn't have, even with your headlights, like on this video, it is just pitch black. If you, just for those tiny little reflective bits every now and then, you would not know there was a train right there. Yeah, and I mean, how many right. of us drive with, you know, music on or even, you know, if it was raining and you can't, I mean, some people mm. might be like, well, can't you hear the train if you're right there? Well, yeah. But, and road noise too. That's yeah. another factor. But yeah, also if you're right. driving on approach... Um, you know, most of these signs also say don't, they're not stop, they give way. And mm. the, the rule with give way is you slow down, you check, and then you proceed. Like it's not come mm. to a full stop. It is just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it blows my mind. And, and I think when you consider how catastrophic the consequences are, you know, even in the event of someone has observed the sign and then then hasn't seen the train, you know, the interaction being between a train and a vehicle is never going to end well. You know, you're looking at a fatality or several or, or, or serious injury. And as we'll hear in some of the stories that you're about to share, yeah, it, it is a lot more common than you would think. Mm. Now, it's been over 20 years since your brother's accident. A few years ago, you reignited your campaign, which... It's, you know, not just you, it's it's all the families involved and other members of the community. It's a campaign for better signage. That's correct, yeah. What prompted that? There was a horrific double fatality up in the Pilbara and a, a very well-respected um, partialist was um, involved in that accident as well. 
tragically. Um, but th- that that particular accident um, created a, a real outcry from the road transport industry in WA because in that particular accident, fallen signage was a significant factor in that accident, uh, in, in the causation of it. So that really created a, a storm and Vince Catania, the MLA up in the Pilbara at the time, he was the one who um, put together the, the petition, um, which was calling for uh, better better signage practices from main roads. And I made contact with Vince um, shortly after he'd tabled that and offered to help him. And, and I, uh, along with many other people, I um, was involved in distributing petitions because I, I feel so strongly about this. And the, look, it doesn't matter whether it's it's permanent signage or temporary. Main roads could be doing a whole lot better than they are, and that was the thing because we we'd survived um, our own situation. You know, with, with the with the signage, it didn't even meet Australian standards, or it was the bare minimum. You know, it made my blood boil because good good people's lives are changed forever, and they were out of this accident. So, yeah, that was when I came out fighting pretty much. And so, mm. this accident that you speak of was actually. Uh, a road train, not mm. a train train. Yeah. So uh, I guess a, a truck, a semi, yes. yep. semi truck with a couple of trailers. That's correct. And that is something we'll probably cover on another episode because again, like this is a huge issue and this mm. one we're really focusing on rail crossings. But if you think there's an issue here, like we said, mm. that accident was essentially caused again by bloody insufficient sign. You know, mm. there were roadworks, mm. signage wasn't, you know, the, the warning signs for the roadworks basically weren't um, checked on or whatever. They'd all fallen over, so people mm. driving through didn't know. Yeah. And again, that the the, the mm. extreme changing conditions on the road yeah. resulted in a double fatality, and people had no yeah. bloody warning. And coupled with the fact that main roads was allowed to uh, you know to conduct their own accident investigations, so obviously there was some tampering of evidence that took place overnight and things like that, which is is terrible, you know, in itself. Yeah. So, yeah, that was why I really championed that cause, yeah. It must have been, you know, like I said, it was almost 20 years after your brother's accident and to see that this is still happening and nothing is changing, how, you know, the word frustrating doesn't even come close to what you must have felt. Yeah, yeah, it's been terrible. And, and for all our families, you know, you, you just want to honour the, the lives of your loved ones by, by something that's, that's going to hopefully prevent another family going through the same. You know, we, we are rural people. We, we believe in community. We help each other. And I just could not sit back and continue to see these accidents happen. And I guess, um, Steph, uh, the, as I mentioned to you, the catalyst really uh, for this, this recent rail uh, campaign was the double fatality just last year in New South Wales um, of Ethan um, Hunter and, and Mark Fenton. I don't think there's anything that would make losing someone any easier, but to know that as a result of their loss, something has changed mm. and something has improved might make it just a little bit better. But to know that, yeah, they, that they've, they've gone and nothing's changed out, out of it. Yeah. It must just be devastating. Leading on to that, with the trains issue um, and the passive level crossings, it was only, you know, a few months after that when, um, we heard the news, like I think I saw it on social media, that a, a lady called Maddie Bott had lost her fiancé in February of 2021 and his work colleague um, over in New South Wales. 
And basically, I spoke to Merrily contacted me and she said, I'd like to get in touch with Maddie. Will you support me? And I said, absolutely, I will. Because we had obviously a lot of historical information and Merrily particularly had just done a power of work in the early days. Um, so we, we wanted to help Maddie and just let her know what had actually been done in the past in terms of train illumination studies, trials, <laughs> reviews. And um, yeah, so that, that's why we made contact with, with Maddie then. And, and I've continued on from that. Also, we had a uh, an ABC landline program in October last year and then several more families came on board uh, as a result of that in exactly the same position as us. So, yeah, yeah, all united by tragedy really, but a wonderful group of families. I actually learnt about Maddie's story shortly after it happened because we're both in the same a gr- a group on Facebook. I think at the time she was trying to get people to sign a petition because she wanted to, you know, table something in Parliament. That's um, correct, yes. I can't begin to imagine when you guys reached out to her what it felt like for her to realise, you know, she's just lost. And it was a few weeks. It was like five weeks before the wedding or something. Like It was absolutely, yeah, horrific. Could it get any more tragic for her to learn, like here, you know, probably thinking, oh, this is a tragic accident. I've got to do something about this. You know, let's do it. Mm. And then to find out, holy shit, there are people across this country that have been fighting for this for well mm. over 20 years and yeah. realise like if something had happened back then. That's right. Her, yep. Like, you know, she may be uh, – that uh, wouldn't be where she is today. Yep. I can't imagine like, yeah, learning that, oh, this isn't something new. Like mm. this is – That's right, yeah. And their beautiful rural community there lost two very fine men and uh, horrific for, for obviously Ethan's um, father and mother too and also yeah um, the other family involved you know it was just just horrific and they were they were rural people they were just carting gypsum from one side of a farm to another you know just the, the sort of stuff that we all you know all do <laughs> in farming areas station country yeah. from lara's fight for improved train visibility and safety at passive level crossings She now represents 12 families across Australia who have also lost loved ones in similar circumstances. This is just 12 families, but there are so many more out there. The number of people who have died in railway crossing accidents, it's phenomenal. It's something you just, you can't believe that the numbers are actually what they are. There are so many stories out there. But this is the thing. They're not just numbers. They're not just statistics. These are people. People with loved ones and people who have stories. And I'd like to share just two of those stories with you right now. Kyle Wooden had just started an apprenticeship with his father Barry at the family's mechanical workshop in Wagga. On the 27th of January in 2001, Kyle... 18 years old and a keen sportsman, was travelling with four friends to see his best mate, Nick Henderson, play in his debut first grade game with the Melbourne Storm Rugby League Club. You can only imagine how excited the boys would have been. But the five friends never made the game. Tragically, they were killed instantly when the XPT Sydney to Melbourne Express train hit the car they were travelling in at the notorious Bells Road level crossing. The accident, of course, was investigated, 
And the coroner said that the real tragedy in this matter is not whether the driver made an error of judgment, but that in this day and age, when we all strive to reap the benefits of new technology, such as computers, advances in medicine, trains that travel at 160 kilometers an hour and even faster, we still have a 19th century approach to level crossings on the basis that they are traversed by horse and cart. Today, the passive crossing has been replaced with an overpass named Five Mates Crossing. The other story I'd like to share with you is that of Mandy Dempster. Mandy dropped her little sister Millie off at the school bus in the morning on February 10, 1993 and promised to pick her up later that afternoon. But that was the last time Millie would see her sister alive. Mandy, an avid animal lover, had her beloved mini fox terrier Zoe with her on the tractor when they were both struck and killed by the prospector train. They were buried together. The accident occurred on the family farm five months after they'd received a letter telling them that the crossing warning lights they begged for were, quote, on the back burner. Eight weeks after Mandy's death, lights were put up at that crossing. There are so many stories I could tell you. We'd be here all day. We'd have our own podcast series just on this topic. What I want people to take away from this, though, is that all these accidents have coronial inquests. And the one thing that is so consistent is that the coroners are finding that is not driver error that are causing these accidents. It is train visibility and the safety at rail crossings. I was absolutely blown away uh, in preparing for this episode to learn that organizations have been campaigning for change. I mean, the the only example I've got goes back as as early as 1950. Yeah, that's correct. But for all we know, it's it's been around before then as well. So this example though, this is the Country Women's Association, so the CWA, Yes. who I will admit before learning about this, I thought bake sales, quilts, cups of tea and gossip. I Never think, underestimate the CWA, Steph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew they were kind of like a powerful mafia in a, of their own, but I really thought that it was, um, you know, more of a social uh, yeah. A community and, a, yeah, quilts, scones, bake sales, all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to read off a few motions that they've passed. This is the CWA of Western Australia. That's correct, yes. Yep. So in 1950, they passed a motion to urge the government to put warning lights on all country railway crossings. 1950. I know. We're right mm. now in 2022 and you're mm. still trying to do the same thing. Like, That's right. Bloody hell. Uh, 1952, they passed a motion in view of um, the increasing crossing accidents that the railway railway department be requested to paint engines a brighter colour. Mm. Uh, trains are still pretty bloody black and not 
visible. No, obvious, no now. attempt at high vis. So, at all. and that so that is exactly seventy years <laughs> later. In 1955, uh, they passed a motion for a lookout for train signs to be posted at all railway crossings. 1960, passed a motion for railway freight trucks to be marked with luminous paint, easily discernible by lights of approaching vehicles at unlit country crossings. Still, we'll we'll get into that in a second, but mm. I would say like a tiny bit of that has been put into, yeah, not not really. 1961, for a warning sign of two large white crosses to be painted on the road 100 yards either side of all railway crossings. Mm, we and, now have them, yeah, yeah. which is good. Yeah. And 1967, that a railway rolling that railway rolling stock be fitted with reflector lights or lighting strips. Again, that kind of goes back to the, the one of the previous ones. Mm. Some sort of progress but not really I, I just think it's so powerful in itself isn't it such a well-respected grassroots organization like the CWA and and their road safety initiatives and how long they've been going for I mean you think of the women in those those groups that were lobbying for those changes they would have lost loved ones here you know that this is a thing it's so reactive yeah we we want change yeah but they're they're lobbying back in like 1950 saying I don't want my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren to go through this yeah and that is exactly what is happening to That's their right. to their generations today absolutely they, they, um, they must have thought as as you know as I'm sure everybody thinks now oh we're doing all this stuff so our great grandkids or whatever in the future will never have to deal with I don't know, climate change or whatever yeah yeah and that's probably what they thought they were working for mm. and here we are all that's those right. years later yep we're just in the business Barbara of trying to, yeah, trying to save some lives here, you know, just to spare other beautiful families living with these legacies, you know, because you, yeah, your life's never the same again. It's just a tragic waste of life. Now, you've mentioned a few different organisations so far. So, we, um, main roads, you know, there were federal government, state government. You also mentioned, um, in your brother's accident, there are a couple of different shires. Uh, in the area, you've also mentioned like the railway. They're infrastructure managers, yes. Yeah, so, so ARTC, ARC. There yep. seems to be a lot of moving parts in this. Who is actually, like, where does the buck stop in this? That that is the big problem we've got, Steph. In in that it's not so cut and dried. You know that there are it, it's multifaceted. That it's it's multi agency involved here. That is where the trouble comes in. Trying to get some some change here, and and j- j- just to demonstrate what we're up against, I can quote you from a letter received by Rita Safiotti, our WA Transport Minister, on this particular issue. She said, in response to the letters we'd written asking for these changes, these long overdue changes, the issue of safety at rail level crossings extends beyond the state's railway infrastructure, affecting other private railways in WA and all railways across Australia. The actions being called for in your correspondence present both operational and technical challenges to the rail industry. In other words, this is all too hard. It's not too hard. If, if there is, if there is a will, there is a way. And to me, to my way of thinking, if these multi-billion dollar rail companies, they, they can't operate safely in our regions, they shouldn't be operating at all. So I understand that, yeah, there are, there are public and private railways in Australia. Mm. Same with roads. But what I don't understand is how are they just not all governed by one major body and under one set of rules it shouldn't be a matter of if it's a public or private rail and and I you know there's so many different companies that use these rails I'm wondering why they have to 
do certain things and and the onus is being put on them when say we have all different companies and users of the road and the onus isn't put on all of us individually. No, there, there is now a rail safety national law um, but the problem we have obviously with the, the regulator in charge of this, administering this law, is that the the regulator is industry funded. Um, one of its key stated objectives on its website is to reduce the regulatory burden on the rail industry. So here we go again. We, we've got this cosiness between industry and regulation that's our problem here. Like we, yeah. And it also just seems like there's no clear, there's no clear definition between all these different bodies. And that really just really that, you know, where it makes accountability non-existent because mm, it, it makes it, paper shuffling easy. Yes. <laughs> and accountability. Yeah. And we have seen it. We have seen so much stuff in the way of trials, reviews, reports regurgitated uh, over the decades. And, and, and that's what gets a bit exhausting here be, because you, you can put a man on the moon, Steph. You can light up a train. You can sort out a crossing. You know, that's, that's the long and short of this here. It really is the epitome of the phrase don't mistake activity for achievement because, yeah, there's been plenty of activity <laughs> yeah. in this space by people mm. who have the power to enact change, mm. but essentially all that activity has been is paper pushing and finger pointing and nothing has changed. Mm. And so, yeah, you go, you know, main roads, we want this change. Oh, no, no, you've got to take it up with that mob and then you go to that mob and they're like, oh, no, 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 like – Take that, you know, th- this is a local shire issue and you go to the shire and they go, no, that's, that's main roads and it's mm. just a big bloody. But yeah. I don't understand how are the rules for railways so different to just roads, you know, like the Fed, I really, I, I don't understand how the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over this to say that, you know, mm. in Australia, every railway crossing, let's say, you know, they have, I don't know, you know, same with roads. Like mm. every road in Australia, there's like standards. I know there's like differences between the states, but there's still got to be some overarching like level of standard. That's correct, yeah. How or how does it even say if you're going to do it different state to state, how does it not sit with the state government to say these are our rules that mm. for rail crossings, you know, I, you mentioned that there's there's groups that manage the infrastructure of rail right. yeah. yeah. But I can see that being – um Oh, I just, I don't know. It's It's, just ridiculous. In a nutshell, it's weak governance. The rail industry is highly profitable, so it's always had a degree of protection or or a level of protection afforded by government that has always made us, (laughs) has made us feel uneasy because we know that that protects them from doing things that they should be doing. And, you you know, I mean, you look at aviation, maritime, the road transport industry, how regulated they are. You know, you're driving a semi-trailer down the road with 36 side lights. One of those clearance lights gets blown, you get charged 400 bucks. That's the reality out there on the road, you know, but not, not for rail. They are a law unto themselves, sadly, Steph. So if I do the math on, say, about 16,000 passive uh, crossings across Australia, passive level crossings, at about 30 grand, you know, to put them in each, this is coming up. God, I hope I can read it. There's a few zeros here. I think $480 million. Okay, yeah, that's a fair chunk of change, but we're not saying put it all in in the next month. No. But, I mean, Mm. the fact that it's not even something that's being worked towards. It's not even a goal. And, yes, oh, that's a lot of money, but – how are you putting a, a value on lives? And also things, it's oh, it's not you're not going to go broke if this has to happen. Like mm, you can do it over time, make a plan, cost will be absorbed. Yeah, It's the nature of whatever. It's just 
Yeah. Actually, just the people involved, especially in leadership in this industry, should be so ashamed of themselves. Mm. So ashamed. I think you're right. And on that, on that sense, look, we have, I have had conversations with a couple of rail company owners and things and, and, and one in particular has been extremely helpful and very proactive. But the, the other people we've had contact us are also train drivers who say that passive crossings are their worst nightmare. They wake up in the morning, they're anxious about these because they've seen it firsthand. You know, several of the ones I've spoken to have been involved in fatalities. So yeah, it, it, this, this, this fights for them too. We, we want their employers, these rail companies to step up to the plate and make it safer for their own employees as well as us, the general travelling public. Especially now, you've got people wandering out yonder, left, right and centre, you know. They've got no awareness of what these passive crossings are and that's why I'm worried <laughs> that it's just a matter of time. I just wonder though, should the owners be sitting with the rail companies? Because at one crossing, there may be like, you know, five different companies that use that railway line. Again, that's why I think it's like the equivalent of main roads or it is main roads. Like it is the, you know, this overarching, you know, it shouldn't, because you know, well, their business creates risks. That's that's always our point with rail companies. Yeah, but uh, wouldn't but, there be levies or fees or whatever that go back into the government? Same as you know, everyone that uses the roads somehow it's part of our taxes goes back to help maintain the roads. And so, why should an individual company, like say, I don't know, um, CBH, is you know, one uh, that carts grain or whatever, but they're not the only one. Say, let's just pick one rail line that they go on that has some passive crossings. They're not the only company that put a train on those tracks no, so sure. to i think if it went from that approach it had just become too much of a of a shit show really to manage who needs to chip in what and whatever why can't they just be a levy system and then it's government it needs to come from you know the only problem is it's your it's your rail infrastructure managers that are, that are charged with the responsibility of maintaining and and repair of these lines you see and that's the way it's always yeah. been and that's and like, where it gets but how are, they, how are they not a part of government instead of like something outside of it like same with main like yeah, oh. well, they are. There's all sorts of overlaps, but and and that's where you know you can lose people because it does get complicated. It's not a silver bullet. We, we, we are realists. We're all over this. We've we've done it for years. But yeah, that that that's the thing. It's not so easy. And and because you're dealing with multiple agencies here, the battle gets greater. But there's nothing stopping a rail company from lighting up a train. Yes. Mm. So that's the other side of what you're pushing for. One is the signage um, at passive crossings, and well, just basically the what's going on there the other one is about trains themselves so you've mentioned that there are some really massive issues with the visibility of of the trains Mm. can you explain what is currently required of trains and what you would like to see changed yeah sure okay by law so um, trains have to have the uh, headlights obviously Uh, you you may see some of the wheat belts some have a large large headlight some have two small ones then they have ditch lights at the bottom which are also called crossing lights and they have a cross-eyed effect across the the ditch basically so they light up the from the bottom of the train to the track they light up the bottom front of the train and uh, they're used to illuminate the track and um and then you have uh, it's it's a legal requirement to have reflective strips but there's not such a provision there to replace clean um 
look after those strips in, in order for them to be seen. And look, Steph, reflective strips, <laughs> they do not constitute a form of safety lighting in my opinion. They need a light source directed at them to be in any way useful and they need to be present, they need to be clean and not graffitied over. This, this is the issue I have with, yeah, and, and the standard that surrounds them, which is 7531, <laughs> um, which means that rail companies have to address light the safety issues as far as reasonably practicable so there you go there's plenty of wriggle room there and that's what's been happening uh, sadly so um, there's a law written to say like you've you've got to have these reflective strips on but it basically ends there there's nothing to say you've got to keep them clean and actually working um you know if they get graffitied over or if they fall off or whatever you've got to replace them like it's just yeah you've got to install them at the start and that's it's incredibly vague it's it's incredibly vague and incredibly loose and that's why we're saying look we know that there's solar led um options available on the market we've got one rail company i've been dealing with over east he's actually going to trial lane markers on on a train a working train of his So, so it would be a working trial in the east and he's been a wonderful help he's quite proactive we're not anti rail we just know that they can do so much better that their business creates risks, you know, mitigate those risks. So everyone's safe, not only your employees but us, the, the travelling public. We've got every right for that. I know there's some differences between what's required of trains, like rail trains and road trains. What are those differences? Okay, so on your road trains, you, know, you, you have to have side lighting. That is mandatory. So say on a semi-trailer, you, you've got 36 lights along the length of that to basically to distinguish that vehicle as an over-length, over-width hazardous vehicle um yeah and of course you know um when escorts when they're traveling like they have a have a rotating beacon when when you know anything to do with machinery or mining vehicles they've all got a rotating beacon which is the accepted indicator of a of a hazard on our roads um and that's the point we're always pushing it's a it's a it's a it's a pulsating light or, or a rotating beacon that alerts that the the eye to 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 this, this incredibly heavy, dangerous vehicle. How hard, how expensive is it going to be to put on a beacon on each carriage of a train? Well, that's the other point. We know that the cane industry has been doing this for decades in uh, Queensland. The only thing is that they don't sit under the auspices of the regulator. Um, they sit under Queensland Work Health and Safety. So that's different again. But they've proven that it can be done. And I've spoken to several of the, the sugar mill company owners over there. They also own the train trains. And they've said, yes, that um, the, the only time those beacons are off is when they're parked stationary in the yard, the trains. So... Yeah, so that's been happening for a long so time. So for us to hear for anything new, not <laughs> no. asking to try this brand new technology and just, you know, have a, you know, let's trial something brand new. It, yeah. It's been done. Yeah, aviation's the same, maritime. You know, these, they're lit as they should be. So you, you've got every chance of seeing them. There's been, I mean, too many to count, but so many reviews, reports, inquests, coronial hearings, you know, you name it, it's its happened over the last however many decades. In a nutshell, what have the findings been mm-hmm. and the recommendations and what has actually changed? Okay, I suppose it's important to firstly understand the job of a coroner, you know, that these people are, their, their job is to investigate unnatural deaths and then make findings and recommendations in the interest of public safety 
to stop this happening again. So in 2001, Alistair Hope, state coroner, then said he, um, that he recommended that um, uh, fitting a strobe light, um, uh, sorry, auxiliary fitting auxiliary lighting, um, like strobe lighting, to the top of the train to alert the driver, and this would be in addition to n- not to replace the ditch lighting at, at the front of the train. And as again, the ditch lights are there for the bottom of the train. If you've got overgrown vegetation, anything obstructing the view of that train line they're useless for a driver who's sitting at a passive crossing. That's the problem with the ditch lights we have. Yeah, and they're only at one, like at the front of the train. So if you pull up to a crossing at night time and the train's like halfway through and it's one of those trains that, you know, goes for five minutes, that light is well down the track. Yeah. There is nothing else aside from some reflector strips, which we all know from social media videos have seen that – don't have to be maintained, often just aren't there. Yeah. There's nothing, there's, there is no light. So, no. and, and we know that the solar technology is there now to, to put in solar LED lights as well. Obviously, on a, on a train that's, you know, one, one kilometer, 1.5 kilometers, you, to, to, to wire them up, that's not even realistic or practical. You know, that's a lot of wiring. So th- that's where we're saying, look, we, we don't expect them to, we're realists here, but we know that there are solar options available out there to, to light up. There's to, to get some side lighting on your on your trains, on your wagons. Yeah, it's just, and we're prepared to have the dialogue, Steph. I'm I'm an optimist by nature, and and I know what it takes to engage. I'm not I'm not someone who's not going to deal with rail companies, train drivers. I've, I've had so many conversations over these last couple of years <laughs> that yeah, it, it's just it's tough. Yeah, you you just you just want change for everyone, make everyone safer. We've just had a, a pretty robust discussion, you know, going over, oh, you know, how there's so, there's so many moving parts in this and there's all these different companies that just keep, you know, passing the buck like it, like it's a bloody sports game, you know, they're handballing everything to each other and, and there's, you know, so many moving parts. And we've, we've just kind of spoken about this from an, an industry and a company level. At the end of the day, though, this is about people. This is why we're doing this so that this doesn't happen to our loved ones or, or to us. Yeah. What can you tell me about the last time you saw Christian? You know, what did you do? What did you talk about? And what memories do you have of him that you carry with you today? It was uh, 21st at where I, where I last saw him. It was a party. There was all the all the station crew from Mika, <laughs> bunch of larrikins that they were, and Christian was right in amongst it. He was having the, the best time. And, um, yeah, we had some great chats that night. And and then I actually I did have one last phone call um, conversation with him before the accident. I think it was midweek before the the accident on the on the Saturday, and um, yeah, it was beautiful. He was um, yeah he, he was large as life. He just started his um, plumbing apprenticeship. He was happy and yeah he he was larger than life. He just had the most beautiful gregarious personality. He was so well loved and so was his friends Jess and Hillary. You know they were three very special people that the world desperately needed. And, yeah, it's hard because we won Lotto having him in our family and we, yeah, we lost big time losing him. As, as we can see, it's it's not, it's not you know, it's 20 years later, it's not getting any easier and I don't think it ever does. In your fight for safer roads, you often have to relive one of the most awful moments in your life as you've done today and as we've seen just then, you know, speaking about the last time you saw Christian, it's, it's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's an important part. I think you could come out and just, you know, talk about facts and figures and 
but by sharing your story, I think it does have a, a much bigger impact on people, but it's also incredibly difficult. That must yeah. be very taxing on you. What is the impact on you? Yeah, it's hard to relive that. And I think probably in the last few weeks um, since the other new families have joined our campaign, that's had a degree of difficulty too because um, there's a lot of hurt for those families and 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 I, I I love talking to them but you you feel their pain as well it's it's not normal not to they're just wonderful rural families just like us um, in particular that the New South Wales family's doing it so terribly hard at the moment that it hasn't even been a year since they lost their two over there and and that that does take its toll like I'm stoic I'm resilient but it it is hard and um and, and I guess I'm very conscious of in our situation with the three families is not bringing or not dragging them through it. But I also have the full support of every single one of those families. They are the most beautiful people. They're brave and they're determined to get this this done this time. We're not going anywhere and we want this fixed. You know, we that's the we want we want our loved ones honoured by some permanent effective safety measures, Steph. That's that's what we want. It's not too much to ask. If you have had an experience with a train at a passive level crossing or would like to help support the families who have lost loved ones across Australia, please join the Facebook group, Improve Train Lighting and Passive Level Crossing Safety. Any campaign updates will be posted to this group, as well as news articles and information that comes to hand. And if you have lost somebody... Lara and everybody else involved would like to extend a hand of support to you. There are currently 12 families that have banded together and they are united in their fight for improved train visibility and safety at passive level crossings. And as we all know, there's power in numbers. So if you've been affected, please reach out. Let these people support you. And from myself and Central Station, I'd just like to say that Almost all the episodes we publish are here for your entertainment and your enjoyment. Something to fill some time in and, you know, be a point of interest for you. But this episode isn't here for our entertainment. As you heard Lara in the episode, it's incredibly hard for her to have to relive the worst moment of her life over and over again. But she does it because she wants to create change. She doesn't want anybody else to go through what she and her family and all the other families involved have gone through. So please don't just listen to this episode and then go on with your life as if nothing has changed. Take the information and the warnings that Lara has given in this episode and use them in your everyday life. Even if you have crossed a passive rail crossing in your local town a million times, next time you get there, just stop and look assess the situation. Make sure you tell other people and please just somehow pass on this message so that we can really work together to stop anyone else having to go through this horrible situation and experience any kind of a loss.